Hello, welcome to BioBased Radio, a podcast promoting a more sustainable future through conversations with industry, university, and environmentalists. Today, our host, Denny Hall, is talking about climate change with Aaron Wilson, a senior research associate with the Bird Polar and Climate Research Center at The Ohio State University. They'll talk about the three pathways of action, the race against time to recover clues from our past climate, and the science behind the movie, The Day After Tomorrow. Boy, it's excited to have as our guest today, Aaron Wilson from Ohio State University Extension. He's our uh, state specialist in climate. And also, Aaron, um, am I right? You're our state climatologist? Actually, I'm not the state climatologist. Okay. Um, but I, I do work with, with the state climatologist, who's Brian Mark. Uh, he's a professor in the Department of Geography here at OSU. And I, I basically just do a lot of work that overlaps with the office and, and, and kind of forward the mission of the office for sure. Well, as a, speaking as an extension person myself, really glad to have you on the, the payroll on our side of the OSU family. So Aaron, but you're also located, your office is located in the Bird Polar. Could you tell a little bit about Bird and, and, and that whole program? Sure. So uh, Bird, um, Bird Polar Research Center, as it used to be called, was actually uh, started in 1960 as the Institute of Polar Studies. So it is the oldest research institute on the campus here at OSU. In the late 1890s, there was a bidding uh, for Admiral Bird, who, uh, for those that are familiar or not familiar, of course, did a lot of um, polar uh, exploration. Uh, but those, some of the, the, the papers and such came up for bidding, um, and OSU put in a bid, and part of that bid, we said that we would rename the center, the Bird Polar uh, Research Center. Uh, we were awarded that funding. Uh, the family decided to return uh, that money to the university and to Bird Polar as an endowment, and it funds a Bird Polar Fellow uh, now here at the, at the center. Uh, the center itself is made up of, uh, of quite a few research groups, uh, those that study ice core, uh, paleoclimatology, so looking at distant past climates through the ice cores and put, you know, uh, just drilling into glaciers and ice sheets. Uh, we've got folks that study uh, cores from the Arctic Ocean and sediment cores, uh, so looking at distant past climates of a million years in uh, millions of years, really looking at uh, different, you know, climate clues in that. Uh, we've got folks that work, for instance, in environmental change. So how are glaciers changing in, in places like the Peruvian Andes, and how does that impact people? Uh, my background here at the center is in the polar meteorology group, uh, so studying um, anything to do with the weather and climate of, of the Arctic and Antarctica. And we've got a number of other groups from remote sensing and hydrology and glaciology that, that really make up this entire center uh, with a very strong research focus and also a very strong education and outreach component, uh, reaching out to the community, 
uh, to stakeholders throughout the state. And so it's been, um, you know, it, it shares its mission in that way a lot with what Extension does in terms of community engagement and outreach. Uh, and, and so it's, it's been um, kind of, you know, not kind of, it's been really fun uh, bringing those two together. So your background then is more into meteorology? Yeah, so my background is an, is an atmospheric scientist. So both, I would say both as a meteorologist, you can think of someone who makes forecasts or forecasts the weather or, or studies uh, how weather patterns um, and, and weather, basically the dynamics of the weather, but also a climatologist. So one who looks at the climatology of our state and, and really applied climatology through my extension work in terms of working with the climate record and how it impacts, for instance, uh, crops or, or on-field research. So there's a lot of ways, obviously, that climate data can be applied uh, from, you know, for instance, power outage modeling that, that Stephen Quiring, another professor here on campus, works, uh, works to, to, to do uh, to, you know, just really kind of maintaining the data of the state. And, and that's kind of one of the key missions of the state climate office is to be those data stewards for weather and climate information in the state of Ohio. Now, you grew up on a farm yourself, right? No. No? No farm. No. I grew up next to a farm. I grew up next to a farmer. And it's kind of funny because I was interested in, in ag and ag science. Every test I took in elementary school, it says ag science. <laughs> but I've been interested in the weather since, as I recall, since I was three years old. So uh, we grew up in, I grew up in Miamisburg, Ohio, a little bit south of Dayton there in southwest Ohio. We moved to Miami, Florida, and, and lived in North Miami Beach for about three years. But even at three and four years old, if you live in Florida, you're intimately aware with tropical cyclones and hurricanes. And anytime those systems came even close, we'd go down to the beach and I could watch the interaction between the atmosphere and the ocean. And I was hooked. I was hooked from a young age on weather and studying weather. And that just intensified even after we returned to Ohio. We had the 1988 drought, which was really fascinating to me. Uh, we had the 1989 uh, Hurricane Hugo came ashore uh, in Charleston, South Carolina. I had family living there. And, you know, just these all these different events, the really cold December of 1989, that was another kind of big impact that I remember. You know, I just really wanted to study the weather. And, and it just, you know, I was interested in, in ag science, but more so in the weather, for sure. For our podcast listeners, they don't know this about Aaron yet, but he stands six foot eight inches tall. And so if it's raining, he knows about it a little bit ahead of the rest of us. That's right. <laughs> Just a little bit of time. <laughs> uh, well, I, I ought to probably introduce why we are having a climate specialist on bio-based radio. Uh, maybe that's obvious to some people, but many of our brand owners, and, and we've talked to them already, you've heard from PepsiCo and Sherwin-Williams, and uh, soon you're going to hear from Ford Motor Company, and we've got quite a few guests that, that are major brand owners that have talked about the issues of carbon in the atmosphere, and that their sustainability strategies often utilize bio-based materials because of the improved environmental footprint. And why are they doing that? Why are they interested in 
reducing carbon emissions. And so um, for most of us, uh, we recognize that there's this thing called climate change happening and thought that it would be good for us to probe into that topic a little bit and see, you know, what's, what's the fact, what's the, the, the fiction associated with climate change. And so, Aaron, uh, you're out talking to farmers and, and other uh, stakeholders in this space. What's, what do you have to say about the issue of climate change and its reality, its, uh, its impacts on society? Uh, you know, the simplest message can really be pared down to, to I think, a few statements, and they're, you know, they're, they're pretty direct. One, uh, that climate change is real, it's happening, it's supported by science. Another statement that can be made is that the majority of scientists, climate scientists in particular, agree uh, that contemporary climate change, the climate change that we've seen over the last couple of centuries, is a direct impact of human activities, namely pulling fossil fuels and carbon dioxide, you know, carbon from the atmosphere and releasing, or sorry, from the ground and releasing it into our atmosphere as carbon dioxide. And that, so, so the third one would be, it's absolutely caused by humans. And the last one is, we absolutely can do something about it, uh, both on an adaptation side and a mitigation side. And so I think those are some really cl clear messages that I hope that come out of my talk. And the last one that with farmers, I think that I like to do is to say, look, I have climate expertise, but I'm not a farmer. You're a farmer. And so what it's going to take is it's going to take cooperation, collaboration, and conversations where we can bring our expertise together to talk about the issues that we're facing and, the, and, and then potential solutions moving forward both on the adaptation side and the mitigation side. So that, I think, would encapsulate the message, the overall message that I'm, I'm trying to present each and every time I'm out. So carbon dioxide has an impact on climate change. Um, you've also shared that water vapor does. You know, you want to talk a little bit about how these uh, impact weather. You know, essentially everything that we know about weather comes down to the relationship that we have with the sun, and we meaning the earth. Uh, so this sun-earth relationship is, is obviously vital to what, what takes place. And we are we, we know in our, 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 our particular solar system, it's unique that our atmosphere supports life as we know it, right? So what, what we have, um, you know, if you imagine the sun and and where we live, it's mostly visible light. It strikes the Earth's surface, and then it's transformed from what this this visible light or shortwave radiation into long-wave terrestrial, what we call terrestrial radiation, infrared, right? Infrared light that's given off. Now we have these greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, largely water vapor and CO two. We call them greenhouse gas because they have that impact. They keep it warmer than it otherwise would be. As a matter of fact, Earth's atmospheric temperature is about 60 degrees warmer than it would be without water vapor and carbon dioxide. And that is because the visible light, the shortwave radiation, has no impact on these particles. We call it the atmospheric window. But the infrared light, that, that long-wave radiation, the terrestrial radiation, is absorbed by these particles and the temperature then goes up or is warmer than it would be without them. 
So it's a pretty simple math equation. You add more greenhouse gases to the atmosphere, more of that radiation that the Earth is emitting is being absorbed into the atmosphere, and your temperature goes up. And that's what we've seen. And then some feedback mechanisms start to take place. So as our temperatures warm, we increase the amount of water vapor. We increase the evaporation taking place of water at the surface, and, and more water vapor is now being lifted and put into the atmosphere to absorb more of that heat or more of that, that radiation, and then temperatures go up even more. Uh, and we know that we've continued to burn fossil fuels at, at a very rapid rate. Uh, we know throughout history during our, you know, the, the paleoclimate history that our warmest periods in history naturally occurring at around 300 parts per million of carbon dioxide and our coolest period occurring around 180 parts per million. And this past year in May, we hit 411 parts per million, which we have not seen in the last 3 million years of Earth's history. So we know that you know having more carbon dioxide, having more water vapor increases our temperature. And then as we continue to put more carbon dioxide in the, into the atmosphere as well, we're having a direct impact on that relationship between the sun and the earth. I just want to go back. Uh, 180 was at the coldest time? Correct. So if you're looking at like the last glacial maximum or time periods where, for instance, here in Ohio, we had a large scale glacier here. Uh, you know, we were looking at 180 parts per million of CO2 in the atmosphere. Our warmer, our warmest periods throughout history have been around 300 or 320 parts per million in terms of over the last 800,000 years. And I use that 800,000 years because we have we have direct measurements of an, from an ice core in Antarctica that tells us this. And and these these records are also tied to other ice in other parts of the world like Greenland, and then even more recently over places in the tropics that also have glaciers as well. And then how does the 411 parts per million that we have now uh, compare in terms of temperature? You know, you indicated that 300 to 320 is like the warmer times that, at looking back. But we're now at 411. Are we at the warmest ever? No, no we're, we're not the warmest ever. And so that, that question comes up is, you know, when we're talking about these oscillations between our low and high point of CO2, we're talking about thousands of years, right? Thousands of years, a, a lot longer period for these transitions that are taking place. We've increased our atmospheric CO2, you know, almost 100 parts per million, actually more than 100 parts per million just since about 1958. So there's a little bit of, of you know, we talk about inertia in our system we talk a little bit about the, you know, you know the, the fact that we have perturbed the natural system so much. This is why we're seeing things about accelerated warming, right? So 16 of the, the last 17 years have been the warmest years on record during our human observations, which directly go back to about the late 1800s. And so this this is the that relationship and, and 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 why as we look into the future we see even more accelerated warming uh, that's taking place. Another part of this is that you know we're a lot we have a lot of water, and so not only are we warming the atmosphere, but we're also warming our oceans. We're warming the surface, and now we have evidence that it's been circulated to depth as well. And so, 
you know, not just looking at temperature, but thinking of the entire earth as, a, as an energy system, we've increased that heat, that energy in our system tremendously directly due to the impacts of, of, of adding CO2 to the atmosphere. From your perspective, what do you think we need to be doing to address these kinds of issues? Typically, we, you know, and, and I would agree with this, we break it down into two different camps, right? Really, when you look at decision-making when it comes to climate change, there are three pathways of action. I didn't come up with these, but these are ones that I would agree with. One, we have to adapt to the changes that we're seeing. We have to anticipate that the changes that we're seeing mean that we need to act upon them now. So that, I think, is one, one big avenue. Two, we have to think about mitigation. We have to think about what we know to be the human thumbprint, the, the fingerprint by adding more CO2. We have to think about pulling CO2 out of the atmosphere if we are to slow conditions and changes into the future. And then, of course, there's a third action, which is inaction, to do nothing, to not talk about it, to not do anything, and, but that's choosing to suffer. And unfortunately, throughout the world, uh, suffering will not be equitable. Vulnerable populations and, and poor will, will suffer more than others. And those that are unable to, say, rebuild after disasters or are unable to um, get out of harm's way, for instance. So we know that those are kind of the three pathways that we should be doing. And then there's always a, a matter of scale between individual actions and larger actions. I think the way that those are tied, there's two ways that those are tied, and not to get too political, but obviously we affect things through two ways, our purchasing power and our voting, right? And so if we are aligning what we feel as our values along with those two things, I think it's very important that those actions can also represent pathways of thinking about how climate change impacts both how we spend our money and how we vote. And those are, those are two additional thoughts that I think are very important to keep in mind. Let's transition a little bit into bio-based products, because as we've talked, you know, the use of bio-based products lessens a carbon footprint. You know, there, we, we had earlier on Joe Jankowski from Braskem, and we talked about bio-based polyethylene and that big difference between polyethylene that's made from sugar versus polyethylene that's made from petroleum, five tons of CO2. And that's, you know, in, in the big scale of things, that may not be big for an individual consumer, but corporate manufacturers who use tons and tons of polyethylene, you know, it's a way in which they can greatly improve their, you know, corporate sustainability by using these kinds of materials. So, well, let's come back. Let's talk a little bit about Ohio. I know this is a national and international podcast, but you and I both live in Ohio, and, and so we see some climate change issues occurring here. Uh, talk about it from your perspective as a, as a state specialist in, in you know, Ohio weather and climate. Um, I guess before you do that, what is the difference between climate and weather? And that's an excellent place to start. In fact, when I'm, when I'm talking to folks, that's, that's where I like to begin uh, because we often interchange those terms and, and they are different. They're related, but they're different. You know, you can imagine you get up in the middle 
you know, one day in the, in the summertime, it might be 65 degrees when, when you get up and, you know, just a few, four or five, six hours later, it's 85, 86, 87. So our temperature has gone up 20, 25 degrees and it'll cool off again at night. So we see these very rapid changes, right, in our temperature and our air, these, these things, these effects, all because we're, the earth is attempting to rebalance the energy, the heat across the surface of the earth and in our oceans, those effects are weather. And they happen at very rapid time scales. And I think scales that humans are, in, are largely in tune with, right? It really is in tune with our daily march, you know, our, our daily lives. But climate is, is different in that it's the slower varying long-term changes. Um, and those long-term changes, by the way, they, they include not only the change in the mean, how our mean state changes, for instance, our average temperature or average precip, but it also means a change in the variability or the tails. Um, fewer record cold, more record heat, um, more intense precipitation events. You know, these types of, of events weather, these singular weather events, I mean, a climate average includes all of this. So it's very important to think of climate very differently. I often use the analogy of a dog walker and a dog. So if you're out walking your dog and you're taking a particular path, of course your dog can meander back and forth, right? Driven by some natural tendencies. But generally, you're both going to be in, moving in a similar direction even though at any instantaneous time, the dog might be moving in a different direction, but generally you're going the same direction. And that's how weather and climate are related. Um, and, and we can look at, you know, how, where you were walking with your dog to base on where we're seeing you move forward. And that's the relationship between those two. Uh, you know, and it's put a lot of ways, like, I think it's attributed to Mark Twain, but a lot of times is climate's what you expect, weather's what you get you know, and all these types of, of, of sayings, but certainly uh, we're seeing not only our average conditions change, but also the variability of the change as well. Okay, so here in Ohio, what kinds of changes are we noting? Yeah, so, you know, when we think about temperature, this is what we see. We see, first of all, our winters are warming twice as fast as our summertime. Uh, so if you look at the change in the coldest temperature of the year, Compared today to, the, say, the early 20th century, we're about anywhere from four to six degrees Fahrenheit uh, warmer than we were, say, 60 to 80 years ago. So that coldest temperature we reach in the winter, we're not getting that cold anymore on average. The other thing that we're seeing is high on temperature side is, you know, during the summer, we're not seeing high temperatures during the summer quite as warm as they were either uh, compared to the early 20th century. So our summer daytime highs have cooled, but our overnight low temperatures across the board, both winter and summer, but particularly in summer, our overnight temperatures are warmer than they were during the early part of the 20th century. So that's what we're seeing on, a, on the temperature side, the, the changes that we're seeing in the temperature. Now, it may be not quite as hot, but it's still doggone muggy. Sure. And that's the, uh, so that's when you start getting into the other, the other piece of this. And, and what really connects temperature and precipitation is we see an increase in the amount of water vapor in the atmosphere. So you can think of it as humidity, but typically we've got muggier conditions. We've got muggier conditions that are lasting longer into the season. And by having more of that water vapor in the atmosphere, 
you know, a front that comes through that, that triggers, that sets off precipitation has more water vapor in the atmosphere to work on. And so that lends itself to increased precipitation. And so we're seeing more precipitation, uh, particularly we've seen a lot more precipitation in the fall season, uh, but also some trends in spring as well as summer, but then also the characteristic of the precipitation. So it's, it's more the extreme events and we can define we can define that differently from extreme, but for instance, two inch rain events are greater. We know we see a lot more of those happening uh, than we did at any time throughout our history. As a matter of fact, it's, it's almost like a persistent type of flooding precipitation. We know that flooding is more than just about precipitation. It's about development. It's about water uh, stewardship as well. But certainly the risk to flooding is much higher today because we're seeing these types of events. Uh, we can break it down a lot of ways. We see more frequent heavy two-day events. We see more precipitation for the absolute top 1% of our events. We see a 42% increase in what we would define as like a one in 100 year event. All of these in increases in, in these intense precipitation events. So, so those, are, are the main impacts. That's the face of climate change here in Ohio, or I should say the causes or what we're seeing, the symptoms of climate change. So what does that look like to us, right? It looks like flooded fields. It looks like persistent high stream flows. It looks like inundated highways. It looks like more invasive weed species and more invasive insects and delayed harvests in the fall because of wet. This is a, you know, kind of a good, a good season for that. You know, we still have a lot of soybeans in the field right now because of this very wet fall, actually third wettest fall on record here in 2018. And so, you know, we're seeing this over and, and over again. So these are the types of, this is the face of climate change in Ohio. It's, it's not melting ice. We haven't had ice here in a very long time. Uh, it's not the wildfires of California. That's their kind of, uh, you know, that's the face of their climate change. But it's really important that we understand what our, our local face looks like. And this is what we're seeing. This is what we have to deal with. Yeah. So if you could, I want to I poke at that a little bit more. Just what does climate change look like in the United States? You know, just some very high level of, around the country. So you talked about forest fires. Yeah, so that was a, like a regional kind of kind of view, just wildfire threat. We know the wildfire seasons are becoming longer, more intense, more fires. Uh, we see that in the data. We see that anecdotally from those that are fighting the fires. Broad scale U.S. generally warming across the board, right? On average, temperatures have warmed uh, since the late 1800s, uh, roughly about two degrees Fahrenheit across the entire country. Warming is strongest across the northern tier of the U.S., a little bit less so in the southeastern part of the U.S. Um, and, and every sector is seeing an increase in, generally an increase in precipitation in terms of the heaviest events. All of these tied, again, to that large-scale forcing or, or the large-scale variable dealing with water vapor. If you, if you break it down into sectors and you think about areas like the southeast United States and what they're susceptible to. We've seen increases in frequency and strength of the strongest hurricanes, for instance. And of course, you know, if it stays out to sea, that's great. There's not a lot of damage. 
but we've got storms like Hurricane Harvey dropping 61 inches of rain in four days. Uh, we've got hurricanes like Florence that dropped this year uh, 40 inches, 50 inches in a matter of a couple of days. Just a lot of precipitation coming down. Out west, it's more this extended dry periods and drought and, and wildfires. And here in the Midwest, the symptoms are those extreme precipitation events. Um, you look at, uh, for instance, ice in and ice out in the Great Lakes or, or lakes across the Midwest. So those are changing and that has impacts on fisheries and ecosystems and ecology. Uh, so it, you, you can you can really zoom in any one of these sectors and see that you know uh, the impacts are happening. They just don't necessarily look homogenous across the entire country or even the entire world. These are symptoms that we're seeing today. There's this really popular movie called Day After Tomorrow, where people, you know, the, there's this huge like ice storm that suddenly hits the United, well, the world, Northern Hemisphere, at least. Talk a little bit about that movie. I know you're a fan. And, and, and kind of what's, what in that feels real and what in that kind of is a little stretch on the truth? I mean, the basic premise, it's working on our ocean circulation, right? And it's ties to the atmosphere. Essentially, our ocean circulation starts in the North Atlantic, where the water, the water cools, when the freshwater freezes, it leaves the salinity greater in the ocean. It's more dense, it sinks, and that really starts the conveyor belt of ocean circulation. The idea being is, as we, in the movie, right, this rapid warm-up, we've got more fresh water, which means we're slowing down that circulation, which in the movie they tie it to a very rapid, right, onset of cold, of, of cold weather just sweeping across ships being frozen in time in the middle of New York City, that type of thing. Obviously, that's, that's, that's the fictional side of things. So the science, the, the, that circulation is there. Um, and, and certainly there's you know, evidence about that natural cycle, or I should say scientific research about that natural cycle. And it does have impacts. It does have an impact. And that's, that's the important thing to note is that we, have, we, ha we know about a lot of the natural variability. We know a lot of these natural cycles that occur. And our climate change doesn't occur without those natural cycles. It's just we've added a we've added a an element here, which is the human side of things. So, for that movie, it's great, just because I think you know it, it's just a fun movie. It's like Twister. It's a fun weather movie. <laughs> so there's these various climate climate watch organizations, uh, international and national. You know, things like the United Nations and NOAA, the National Centers for Environmental Information. You've got the United Nations and their kind of goal. They have the, these uh, sustainability goals. And goal number 13 is, is climate action. And, and you've even got um, what I find really interesting, these various faith organizations that have kind of come together to make statements about climate change and uh, to really articulate the need for that. So given all of this sort of discussion, what do you see when you talk to farmers, what do you get as kind of like pushback? You know, why are people still questioning this? Any feel for that? 
Yeah, you know, I, I, I've thought a lot about this from a farmer's perspective. And, you know, farmers uh, are resilient people, right? Uh, they're, they're resilient in the fact that they're, they're consistently dealing with rapid weather changes or, or that variability of the weather. So I think that that's why that's, that's one piece of this. Um, I, I think for, for human beings, it's, it's kind of hard to imagine that, you know, weather and often seems and, and certainly climate seems like such this big lofty thing that how can, how can we just as these humans, tiny little beings in this massive system have a real impact on what's happening so I think that that's another piece. But then also, you know, it comes down to social dynamics as well. And, and no one wants to feel isolated from the groups that they identify with. So sometimes that's part of it. We know, we know absolutely that those that we have the greatest trust, whether it's political leader, religious leader, uh, or scientific advisor, or, you know, even if you think about crop advisor or or any of the like, we know that, that we are going to fall in step with those that we trust. So really, when we talk about climate change and the impacts, I mean, I see it as a trust-building exercise. You know, I, I have to earn the trust to be reputable and, and, and not just assume that because I'm talking about things in the name of science that it's going to be fully accepted right away. But that doesn't change the message that the science is clear about what, what is happening. So I think what we're seeing, and, and, and I, I certainly think in, in this uh, field of bioproducts, it's certainly similar, is that a lot of the individual components, whether it's at the city level, uh, community level, or, or um, you know, company and business level, there are certainly a large number of people that, that do accept it and are acting upon it. And, and so it's this grassroots or ground up approach where we're not regulating things from a top down, but we're creating the options for people to make more, I think, environmentally conscious decisions. And so that I think is, is, a, is a good thing from farmers. Uh, the pushback, usually most farmers, they, they accept climate's changing, weather patterns are changing. Um, the pushback is what human what humans have to do with it. And, and whether or not we can we can change it. So usually the line is, well, climate's been changing for a very long time, and it's and, and they're correct. But it's important to stress why the climate change we see today is different than what we've seen before. We've changed the system to where it's not likely to return as it once did before. That oscillation between. 180 and 300 parts per million and, and all the stuff we've already discussed without some real big fundamental changes. Yeah. Well, one of the things, the reason I ask about farmers is, you know, one of our eminent scholars here at Ohio State University is Dr. Rattan Lau, who is uh, an expert at how we can use soil to sequester carbon. And, and who's going to do that for us? It's going to be farmers, you know, that are going to be taking this giant landscape that we have and, and managing it in such a way that they're actually improving their soil quality by getting more carbon in their soils. And, and so, you know, too often there's a feeling that people are being targeted, you know, that they're the cause of the problem. 
but in the case of sustainability and resilience, as you like to say, as we think about these climate systems, farmers have such an important positive role to play in helping to pull some of this uh, surplus carbon dioxide, if you will, out of the atmosphere and, and put it back in our land. Yeah, I, I like to, I actually end most of my presentations with just that thought and that slide is that, you know, a lot of farmers are talking about soil and water health, you know, on-field soil and water health today. And, and the climate aspect notwithstanding, you know, just from a, a tillage, the things that we've done to our soil through tillage and uh, this, this need to enrich our soils with more organic material, all of those things are ways to mitigate some impacts from climate change, from compaction and erosion. We know the erosion has to do with the harmful algal blooms complex story here as well. So these are a lot of different components that, that are, are important. And I think farmers have an opportunity to lead the country. I mean, their directive is what? Grow food for products and, or grow, grow crops for products and food um, to, to essentially feed the world. But they have an opportunity to lead uh, by, by example, by doing some of these conservation practices that we know are good for the health of the soil, the water, and the, and the atmosphere, the climate. So it, it's, it's definitely a piece that I think is important in any communication uh, to farmers. And so to add on to that, you know, farmers have an important role to play here in terms of their soil management. But we are increasingly going to be looking to farmers to grow some novel products, some novel materials uh, that we can make bio-based products out of. And, and once again, rather than using petroleum, rather than using fossil resources as our source for materials, what we can make the world more sustainable by using plants. And we'll need farmers to help us grow those. And so before we adjourn, I feel like I need to go back to where we started, and that's the the glaciers, you know, the bird polar and what's going on there. And talk a little bit about glaciers here in the United States, Glacier National Park, glaciers in Europe, and, and kind of what we expect in the way of their life going forward. You know, when, when we think about places like Glacier National Park, we, we know that you know, the t time is ticking for this generation or, or certainly the, the next couple of generations to see Glacier National Park. Certainly, you know, 21,000, 18,000 years ago, we had a lot of ice sitting here across North America. And, and we know that a lot of the natural cycles that have happened, you know, we, we, we know about, you know, our position in, in space and, and how we, we move around the sun and rotate and our tilt and all that stuff impacts that, right? But there's no, you know, when, when people think about places like Glacier, think about skiing in the Alps or, or other places, there's no guarantee. Yeah, we mentioned, we mentioned this about Kilimanjaro. You know, the Ice Corp Bailey Climate Group, you know, they go out and, and the way they see their work is, is it's as a, almost as a recovery mission or as a, a, a mission of, you know, this is our last opportunity to get ice uh, from these places that can tell us about Earth's past climate because they're eventually going to be gone. They can't get ice from Kilimanjaro anymore. 
they can't get ice from, from the tropical glaciers of Papua New Guinea. And eventually all of that will be gone. So our, our, it, it's almost a race against the clock uh, to retrieve these clues about our past climate because there's no guarantee they come back, right? There's no guarantee in that. And, and so it, it's really a race to recover these items. And I think, you know, as we, we think about that, you think about Glacier National Park and not being able to see that anymore or skiing. And it affects a lot of things. It affects, tour, you know, you get down to tourism. You, uh, anyway, so I can talk a lot about, about those different aspects. But certainly these places that still have ice and the changes that are taking place in Antarctica and Greenland, they're distant locations. We don't think they, you know, a lot of people have the idea that they don't matter because they're not the face of Ohio climate change. But what's happening there has a big impact on where we live, right? Uh, and into the future, kind of, we talk a lot about unknown, uh, known unknowns. We know that as glaciers melt, sea levels are going to increase. That's going to have an impact on our coastal population. Where are they going to go? Right? Those are big questions. Where are they going to go? Perhaps they come to Ohio, where it's a little warmer and a little wetter, but they're not underwater, at least not persistently. <laughs> That's an un, a known unknown. We know there's climate refugees. There, there will be climate refugees. We know that there are communities already that have voted to move their cities in Alaska because of the threat of climate change. So all of this is just to say that it's a connected world. Things that are happening in, in distant locations have an impact on what's happening here. And uh, again, the science is clear. It's happening. And there's something that we can do about it, both on adaptation and mitigation. Thank you for listening to BioBase Radio, and thank you to our guest, Aaron Wilson, for being on the show today. BioBase Radio is a production of the Bioproducts Innovation Center at The Ohio State University, produced in association with the United States Department of Agriculture, National Institute of Food and Agriculture. BioBase Radio is hosted by Denny Hall and produced and edited by Casey Needham and Brad Collins. If you'd like to help our podcast grow, plant a seed with a friend and rate and review on Apple Podcasts.